so good to be back with you at church. Uh, we are jumping back into the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this book being, just as a quick summary, um, a book about a preacher, that a preacher, a college professor, um, a teacher, he's doing his TED talk. And what he's coming up from is he's been talking about life apart from God. And now some of you should be very familiar with this. He's talking about the secular life. You should be familiar because most of you who grew up in government schools, or what we say is public schools, you were indoctrinated from a very young age to consider history and math and art from a perspective as if God has no bearing on those things. So most of us that have grown up in American public schools have only received education from this secular mindset. But here's what Solomon is doing for us. As a man who drank more than you've drank, who had, has more money in his account than you've got money in your account, who built bigger projects than you've, you know, messed around in your backyard with your little garden, right? He's done more, he's been there, and it's sort of grandpa wisdom that after the prodigal Solomon has repented, he's going to be a grandpa who sets you down and shows you the scars, He's going to say, if you go down this path and you go to find your meaning there, you're going to pick up one of these. And it is going to hurt. And that's how he's going to teach you. He's going to kind of invert the whole system. Instead of just blatantly coming out and saying, here's the truth and here's the way to go, he's going to go every which way but right. And he's going to say, if you go here, if you go there, you're going to come up empty. The words that he uses to describe this kind of system of approach or this philosophical approach to discovering where the meaning of life is not found really centers around two ideas that are repeated over 30 times throughout the book. That is the idea of under the sun. That is, he is looking at life from a purely materialistic, secular perspective with no heaven, no God, no eternity. Now, we've already been this far in the book and he will break from that sometimes and say, yeah, but, and he'll shoot out above the clouds to above the sun, and he'll say, but if there's this God, then there is life, and there is meaning, and there's all this stuff, because he just doesn't want you being too depressed, right? So he's going to kind of reel you in at times, but overarching, the book is from a secular perspective, except for like even the final chapters. And he does this by talking about under the sun. The second is this idea of havel. It, it's a vapor, it's smoke, it's mist. Sometimes translated meaningless. It has a range of meanings. And it has to do this thing of like pursuing the wind. It's like smoke is a thing and it has shape. But the minute you try to grab it, it evades you. And what he's saying is, is there's lots of things in your life that you can chase after and you can kind of grab and they have shape. But the moment you try to wrap your fingers around it, it, like, it's gone. Like, it's not there. And so I would say this, it's like, the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it's, a, it's a painful book, right? I mean, it feels like, a, like going to the cardiologist and reading the report, right? There's lots of cholesterol in there, and you've got to, like, ease up on the bacon, Right? It, it's tough. It's, it's like an Olympic sport. It's curling. You know? 
you don't even know what are the rules, right? It's just painful. I can't look away. It's a train wreck. Apparently, it does lots of works with brooms to get in there, and you're just confused, right? And life has this sense of it can be confusing, especially apart from the one who created it. And that's kind of the point, right? So here's what he's doing. He is ransacking the secular world to try to find meaning apart from God. And he's going to kind of let you in on his clip notes. Last couple weeks, we, before we started Missions Month, we talked about, he says there's nothing better than that you basically, you're joyful, that you do good, you eat, drink, and enjoy your work. And it's kind of like this hint that God has created good things in the world to be enjoyed. But here's the problem, that these things are gifted by God, the text says. That is, without God's grace, work all you want, and it's not going to satisfy the same way. Eat all you want, as gluttonous as you want to be over Thanksgiving. And it's going to lead to a nap. Like, it's not going to satisfy. And so what he's saying is is that these things are grace-enabled. Like, they may satisfy you for a moment, but without God's enabling grace in eternal perspective, death has this way of robbing us. It's, it's not long-lasting like that Wrigley's gum. You take like one stick of it, two chomps later, you're like, is this plastic? This is what he's saying about your life. So then he moves into this idea of that there's this other problem. It's that in the place of justice, you found wickedness and injustice and that God uses that to test us to see that we are actually the wicked ones we are the beast we are the evil that produces evil in the world and that tyranny that we participate in has a way of stealing any joy that we would get from our work so there's oppression there's tears and then it ends kind of here at the start of chapter four there's no comforter and so that that's kind of where we ended about a month ago now, I'm going to give you kind of a roadmap, and then I'm going to look at the text today, 4 through 16, and I'm going to kind of jump a little bit, and there's a reason, because there's a kind of a sandwich going on, building a theme. Now, he ended with no comforter, right? Now, that's what we just talked about. Now, I'm going to argue that where he's going to take that is that there is no comfort because there's no lasting companions, He's going to get into this idea of nothing adds value to life more than relationships. He's going to talk about the the incredible value that relationships bring to life. Okay, so like four through eight is this kind of block. And you can add that there's just like strife, envy, conflict in our work. And it creates no lasting relationships. You go to 13 through 16, he's going to talk about this king and this upstart and this cycle of, you know, being replaced at work. And 13 through 16, there's no one that comes after you that finds joy in you. And so there's no lasting relationships. Then 9 through 12, it's just going to kind of summarize the positive, unlike these other negatives, that relationships, not toil or fame, make life better. That's the argument, okay? Now, the first kind of aspect, no comforter because no lasting companions. Four through six kind of has this 
uh, picture that's going on inside of it. That is, there is this dynamic with work that's really tough. And I think you get this, so I'm going I'm to kind of breeze over it. The first is that you could be lazy and not work at all. And he describes that as eating your own flesh. It is self-destructive to be lazy, to fold your hands, and it says you eat your own flesh. On the other side of the spectrum is people with two handfuls of toil dang near working themselves to death. And you guys have seen that before. And what he's arguing is in the middle is like a little bit of quietness and a handful of toil. Like there's a balance between your two hands. That there's toil and quietness. So he's talking about work. Verse 7 is the idea of what that work produces being passed to the next generation. We, he says that there's this really sad thing that happens when you work yourself to death. But who gets all the fruit from it? And you end up having a house that's too big for one. Then, he goes like down at 16, and it kind of summarizes the second negative unit, which is, it's really, really, really lonely at the top. Especially when the old and the young are in this kind of cycle of transition. Okay, so let me start with the first one and discuss toil and work. And he says that in the text, that it is envy... A man's envy of his neighbor. He saw that toil and all skill and work come from envy of neighbor. And this is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better the handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw the vanity of the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. And yet there is no end to his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and unhappy business. Let me deal with this first word, envy. At first, there's two types of envy that come with this. The first is the work itself. The work that you actually do. And the second is the work that it produces. Nothing illustrates this. And I'm so bummed Matt Lee skipped church today because I was going to talk about him. Right? But Isaac's here, so it's good enough. Nobody personifies the fact that all skill and toil comes from envy of a neighbor. Like construction, guys. Nobody, com- contractors, Chris Krug, plumbers, electricians, tile guys, nobody has a lower opinion of another human being than a builder does of whoever did the job before them. You will, and here's the thing, you come around builders and they will come to your house, look at your electrical work, your plumbing, your house, and they will look at, they will stand there snooty. Who did this? Who did this? Did, Did you hire a clown? Did they set up a tent outside with a circus? I have been in this industry for 200 years, and I've never seen it done like that. Never in my life. When I was six years old and started in this field, 
I did better than this. I'm sorry to tell you, this would regularly cost $7, but now I have to burn your whole house down. Start afresh. Tell me that's not happened. And you, sitting there, you're not a professional. You'd be like, oh my God. we got to burn the whole house down. What's that going to run me? A house. Why? <laughs> we talk about that, and everybody gets it. Because we've all been in a position where somebody else is comparing their skill and their work to somebody else. Right? So the first thing is that there's this envy within work. The second is the envy with what that work produces. Now chapter 2 has already dealt with this. Now, and let's talk about how the Bible is going to work here. Some of us love the book of Romans. The book of Romans is linear. It builds chapter 1, starts, and it's a foundation Chapter 2 builds off chapter 1. You can't understand chapter 2 without chapter 1. It's very Western. Rome is in the West. And it's thinking in linear. When some of us went over 1 John, 1 John is circular. He would talk about the same themes over and again. You'd be like, hey, we, he already talked about this. If he was better organized, he could put all of this conversation here and then all of this one here. Like we're talking about work again. And for some of you that paid attention in chapter 2... We've already talked about work, haven't we? Here's what the writers of Scripture, especially the prophets, do all the time. They are like a drone that gives you a bird's eye view and they circle it. They circle an idea, a truth, so that you get 360 degree of perspective. It's like a bee looking for nectar and it's going to circle the flower. But each time it circles, you see something a little deeper and it's going to build off of what you have already seen. So he's not done talking about work. He's wanting to go deeper based off what he's already said in chapter 2. In chapter 2 he said, work all you want, build all the projects. It's like you, you have a koi fish pond in your backyard, I built a national park. And he says, here's the problem. When you work, what happens if your son is an idiot? That was chapter 2, y'all remember that? You build this huge empire... You have a huge savings account, you pass to them stocks and bonds, and within a generation, the overwhelming majority squander it. Anybody seen that? We talked about that. Here's a different thing. He says some people are working themselves to death, oftentimes at expense to relationships, and they don't even have anybody to leave what they have to. He says he's all alone. He never asked the question, who am I work? Who am I killing myself for here? Because if it's under the sun, it's not to the glory of God. It's literally to pass it to the wind. If you're a secular person here, is there, is there ever been a time in human history where we've devalued family? Yo, from the women, you've got to go get a career and work yourself to death at expense to your kids? You know, men, you've got to keep third, fourth job at expense to family. We are more and more outside the home trying to make money to leave, to leave all this to who? People aren't having kids. Do you realize that for the first time, 18% of Americans have a traditional nuclear family of a husband and a wife and kids? 18%. It's over, it used to be the opposite, say, a generation ago. You don't have traditional families. So what's happening? Who are you, work yourself to death, who are you leaving this stuff to? You have a house 
that's too big for one. And this is the problem. Nobody comes after you. And, and, and when it comes to the work, is not work a grief to you? I mean, the Bible describes it, even in Ecclesiastes, that work can be this thing that gives you such overwhelming anxiety that it steals your sleep. Y'all remember that in the text, right? It brutalizes you, right? And I don't care if you're out hanging drywall and your back goes out, or you're tippy-typing and you've got carpal tunnel, right? And you've got to send one more email. Doesn't work just have this way of just just wearing you out. You got quotas. And let's say it like this. It doesn't matter if you're getting a paycheck or you're a mom in here. Isn't there a frustration about being a parent because they simply don't want to learn to do math? Right? I know this isn't our experience, but do you realize that uh, a lot of early people that settled Colorado were miners, and they said that death rode on three horses. The brown horse was a cave, uh, like cave in in the mines. The black horse was the plague, and the white horse was avalanches. And they said basically death rode on those three horses. You can go up to Silverton, and it, you can look and see that different people up there on their tombstone died of cave in, plague, avalanche. There's death riding on three horses. Ironically, now we pay people money to do mine tours where those people died. But here's the thing. The simple question is the same. Why work yourself to death? So that's the question. Well, one, it gives your life some form of meaning. Money, recognition, satisfaction. Do you realize that you think, well, money, recognition's fine, money's bad? Do you realize that recognition is just a social payout the same way that a financial payout is? Recognition is that you want to be appreciated, you want to be valued, you want to be known. We have these conversations in economics between capitalism and socialism. Capitalism is one individual envying another individual, motivating them to make economic decisions. Socialism or communism is one class envying another class, which is motivating that class to steal from the other class which they envy. We have these dynamics that exist within economics because of exactly what the Bible is saying about how we envy other people. Back in the day, we used to colonize land, or now I think Elon Musk is trying to colonize Mars, but that's a different thing, or Twitter. And we used to colonize things. Now the thing that rich people are trying to colonize is your time, your attention. Do you realize that every time that you look at your phone, they're winning? And every time that you don't look at your phone, you're pushing back. They're trying to, with every second of your day, to colonize your attention. Why? Because of this recognition is a social payout. Social media makes money off of you envying your neighbor. They see that dynamic going on, and they figured out a way to monetize it. 
they figured out if they can colonize your attention, like they got you, and there's nothing that drives that like man envying other man. Because don't, I mean, who, I know all of your lives look great on social media, right? None of you have any problems. Like you've never woke up with like bedhead and said, you know what, this is great selfie hair. I'm just going to blast it out there. Okay, so this goes even further into we have to prove ourselves, our value, our identity. Because work is a way not where we manufacture a product, but where we manufacture our ego. So, it's been said, and maybe I add a little bit to this, but we buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know with money we don't have. Why? Because we want to be envied. We want to have the perfect spouse and the perfect kids and the house and the land and absolutely the chicken coop and, right, and we want to have that car and we want... I know it's Christmas, you're already buying stuff. But what do we buy? Are we we not buying social status symbols? Why? Because in our work and what our work produces, it gives us the capability to rise above other people and to be the envy of those people. This is dangerous, but Solomon is going right at the heart of, of American consumerism. U.S. credit card debt. Forbes magazine produced for this year. U.S. credit card debt is $925 billion with a B. That is up $38 billion in the second quarter. That, for 2022, that is $38 billion in credit card debt that we added in the second quarter. We just think that if we had more... We just got to work more to have more and produce more. We would be the envy of these people. It's interesting, though. There was a poll that was produced. Um, they, they went out and they said, if you could add one hour to the day, so instead of 24 hours a day, you had a 25th hour, what would you do? Like, you got a whole extra hour in the day, what would you do? What do you think 85% of people said they would do? Sleep. Some of you are like, work out. No, 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 you wouldn't. Okay, so the problem with the work-based life is my work, my achievement, my success, I have to win so others therefore have to lose. I have to win so others have to lose. But I, I want to break to the end of where I want to go with the sermon. But Jesus, church, he works to lose so others can win. He lays down his life so others can win. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor in a heavy burden. You are just overwhelmed with work and toil. Come to me, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and I will give you rest for your souls. You're looking for a 25th hour to sleep, and Jesus is like, I can give you peace in the other 24. Come unto me, 
all who labor. So this is the first nugget is that there's this relational dynamic that is fractured in our work, in our achievement, and who we pass it to. And because we have no lasting companions there, we have no lasting comfort there. So that's the first little nugget. Like we said, that's a block. I'm going to skip down and then look down in um, what basically summarized in verse 16. This is um, down here. There was no end to all the people of whom he led, yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. And it tells this little ditty. There was a poor and wise youth than an old fool and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Nobody elbow your husband right here, all right? So he's starting a story. He says it's better. There was a time where it was better. This young buck was young and poor and at that status was better than being an old foolish person that was the king and yet couldn't learn, couldn't listen, couldn't take advice. Right? And we kind of understand this. We get older and we start listening less. For he went from the prison to the throne, though his own kingdom, he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. That is, he had great influence. He was an influencer before there were influencers. He has fame. He's got pull. He's known. He started at the bottom. Now he's here. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. I mean, isn't this like every movie ever? And he's going to make it all the way to the king. And there's people that are going to love him in his generation. But there's going to come a generation after him. Yet those who come after will find no joy in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's what happens to us. That we become too old to take advice. And I know some of you got gray hair in here and you're still young at heart. You're still teachable. You still have a heart to learn. Old is a mentality here that is negative. It is not the glory that the Bible will talk about that if you get to old age, it's a glory. It's a beautiful thing. This is a negative sense of old age. This is where you're old and crusty. Too old to take advice. When he was young, he was poor, but he was wise. See, he learned his way into leadership of numberless folks. He problem solved. He had to figure it out. He innovated. He got all the way from the prison to the throne. He's an up-and-comer. He comes from behind. He's out of nowhere. He rises to power. But power has this pull on him that he becomes a person that can no longer learn. He stops listening and he stops taking advice. And as a result of that, the next generation, his fame dries up. His legacy evaporates. And those that come after him have absolutely no joy in him. There's no friends in the next generation. Something... um, I learned 
you know, even doing Randy's funeral yesterday, is just how valuable it is for an older saint to pour into the next generation. Because I remember with, like, my grandfather that he got to a point in his age where almost all of his friends that he came up with died. And it's a, it's a weird conversation that I walked through that with him and I asked him how that felt like and he just, he kept, you know, pouring himself into church and he says for a season there after my grandmother passed, he didn't know why the Lord kept him alive. But he began to realize that it was the next generation that God had kept him there for. And there's a lot of people that get to a certain age. And listen, you don't got to be gray hair. You could be middle-aged and say, well, I don't have kids in Awana no more, so I'm not going to serve in Awana. I don't have kids in you, so I'm not going to serve in you. We deal with that in church world all the time. But there's something powerful, even about Randy's funeral. I don't got this in my notes. But the fact that he was pouring into the next generation. And that there were so many kids here that were affected by his testimony, not just adults. Do you see the power in that? That There's glory in that. But here's what happens to the old foolish king. He stops listening, he stops connecting, he stops communicating, and nobody in the next generation finds glory in him. No joy. So here comes back to our theme again. There's no comfort because... There's no companions. Relationships add meaning to life. And even a secular person can understand that. Because they are created in the image of the triune God who is a community of one. Church, you are created for community. You are created for relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. Even a secular person can drink from that fountain and say, yeah, I love going down to the billy goat and drinking with my friends. Even a secular person can say, I love going skiing when there's a powder day with my companions. You don't got to be a Christian to understand the power of relationships. The problem that the scripture is going to say is, there's just no lasting ones without God. It's Wrigley's gum all over again. They're going to lose their flavor. It's not, that relation, it's not that they're not right. Relationships are absolutely powerful. Solomon's saying that. It's just they don't last without the eternal one. Okay, so I've kind of talked in the two negative sandwiches that are there. Now I want to look at 9 through 12 and look at the positive because this is, I think this is powerful for us as a church to get. Um, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now there's toil in the context of relationship and that two, community, is better than solitude. For if they fall, that's important, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, so he's going to build off that. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail, here's another build, 
against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I would, I've always heard this taught in context of marriage, and while th- it absolutely applies to the partnership of marriage, it is not exclusive to marriage. This is just talking about partnership, relationship, community, and friendship. So two are better than one. Because if they fall, this is the idea of, I've got your back. That is, humans are not built to defend backwards. Everywhere you see people flee in the Bible in a war, and they turn their back, they get smoked. In jiu-jitsu, this is the reason why people jump on other people's backs to choke them. Because their arms don't go this way. Some of you don't even bathe your back because it doesn't reach. Right? This is in movies when someone says, I got your six. Thinking in terms of a clock. It's that behind you, you can't see, you can't protect, you can't guard. And there is nothing more fake in movies than a single person fighting multiple attackers. Chuck Norris is a lie, people. Right? I could take six 12-year-olds in here, all right, and have them attack an adult male, and that adult male is in trouble. All right? You see Bruce Lee smoking six guys. That's, that's Hollywood, people. We know what we think about Hollywood in the church, all right? It's this idea that we are better together than we are separate. Church, you better say amen. This is the point of church. As Christians, we are better together than we are separate. This is why the enemy comes to divide us. It has been the same tactic for 2,000 years. Christianity, church, is a team sport. I know that you believe you're the Bruce Willis, Liam Neeson of the kingdom. But church, Christianity, is a team sport. God, chief among all helpers we might have, is the great helper. You're like, that sounds blasphemy to say that God would be my helper. Really, you realize that God the Son called God the Holy Spirit the helper. Right? That I'll send my helper to you. Right? God is glorified because, little did you know, He's the only person that can help you people. He's honored in being your helper. So the first thing is that if, verse 10, they fall, if they fall. Now, I think that's a little tongue-in-cheek about the old if they fall thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, take heed lest you fall. So 1 Corinthians teaches us, the person most likely to fall is the one who thinks that he can't. The one most likely to fall is the one who thinks that he can't. Uh, so I went back to Oklahoma and uh, took my son Malachi to uh, Bedlam, which is OU-OSU football game. And I went to OU, so I walked around the campus and you try to see things that had changed. And I took my dad and Malachi and Deacon and we were walking around campus and just enjoying ourselves. 
And I was like reliving all this nostalgic memories of being on campus. And, you know, it just felt so cool. And I was, I, my eyes were up in the sky. And I, I don't know what happened. The earth disappeared beneath me. I'm in, I mean, this is like people everywhere. And I, I'm talking, I fell to the ground. I don't, I don't even remember what happened. I just, I went all the way to the earth. This is one of the things about watching football today. Sometimes you see big hits and you're like, ooh, that would really hurt. I see professional athletes hit the ground and I'm like, yeah. I wouldn't recover for two weeks if I hit the ground like that. And I didn't. I hit the ground hard. Here's how hard I hit the ground. People around me didn't laugh. They were genuinely concerned. They came over and that was even more embarrassing. I'm trying to like rub my glasses off. It's a yard sale. I'm trying to get up and be like, no, it's fine. I meant to do that. You know? There was no barrel rolling out of this. I hit the ground with a thud. Here's the thing. Around you, who are the people that if you fell would be the first to step in and pick you back up? Do you know how dangerous it is to say no one? Who's your first phone call? You blow it big time. Who's in your corner? Okay, because church, this is church. Who's cheering you back to your feet? Who's praying for you? Who's loving there? Who's bothering you until you tell them to quit? Right? If you fall, who's picking you up? This testifies to the level of depth of relationships that we build within the church. Not that we all attend services together. When we talk about this phrase, doing life together, that's what we mean. Um, an illustration of this is like, I, we, we had kids with unusually large heads. And they all know it because like, they wear adult hats. Okay, but it's like, t- I got like multiple kids in like the top 98th percentile of head size. When we took one of my children into the doctor, they actually wanted to examine their head because he's like, this is the biggest head we've ever seen on a child. And they're like, there is something wrong with it. And we're like, no, that's just him. All right. And so what's gr- what was tough about that is when he was learning to crawl, we we're like, he is never going to walk with that head. It's just going to be a ball and chain that he drags across the floor. And the first time that he lifted that head, we were like, oh, this dude's about to be a beast, you know? And doesn't this happen? The kids get up, and they finally stand, and they find a piece of furniture, and they go to that, like, squat, and they grab the coffee table. And you could feel it coming. They're going to take a step. And my kids had no options but to learn to walk, because that head starts going in a direction. Science is involved. Like, you got to, like, get out ahead, and they take the first step. Right? And they let go of the coffee table. One, two, and just rug burn, face plant, scorpion. All right? Now, in that moment, they're going this way, physics working against them. They eat the carpet. Who, no dad ever stood over and been like, idiot. That's, that's my wife's jeans. We got walkers on my side of the family. Right? No. What do we do? We grab the camera. We pick the kid up. 
reenact that, and we're going to tell people this is your first. Take those steps again. Don't we grab, we so, the kid doesn't even know what's going on. We're celebrating the fact that they tried to take a step. Isn't our mentality in the church so backwards? Because we come with so much energy when someone falls trying to bury them, and we don't come with the same energy celebrating it when they make at least one thing right. Like, one of you got in your Bible once this week, I feel like we should throw a party with even more cookies. Right? You're, you're praying with your family this week for the first time, Dad? Let's go! Next week, you're going to blow it, all right? But we're not going to bury you. When you fall, your church is there to lift you back up. And we've got to take heed because this passage says to us that it is possible for anyone in the church to fall. Do you realize that? I know you guys are all perfect people that are not going to make any mistakes next year. Because it's your New Year's resolution. You're already working on it. But anyone in the church can fall. Anyone. Look around you. All these people could make a big piece of stupid within an hour of this service. What are we going to do with it? Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are, listen to this word, spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, if you are in a trespass, so anyone could be overtaken by sin from Galatians 1 in a moment of weakness. And it says to us that those that are, quote, spiritual. Now, there's ways to think about this, but a general consensus is that this is alluding to those in the church that are mature. This also suggests that there are some in the church, listen to me, that are not spiritual, or another way, that are not mature, that are carnal, they are selfish, they are immature, and that if you took your problems to them, it would make it worse and not better. Amen or oh me. Not everybody should be your counselor in every situation. It says, brothers, if anyone's caught in transgression, you are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Some people, because of immaturity, will instead try to elbow drop you from the top buckle. They have no interest in restoration. The word restore is a word that is used like to mend a net or to heal a broken bone. Listen to this church. It's a word dealing with something you intend to use again. You're not throwing it away and recycling it. You intend to use it again. So church, listen to me. Who's your partner? Who's your ride or die? Who helps when you can't defend yourself? Who picks you up? Who restores you? Now, next illustration. It says, this is the most Colorado Bible verse of all time. To, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Your spouse's feet being ice cold notwithstanding. 
This is camping in Colorado. You're in the sleeping bag by yourself. There's one temperature. Two of you get in there. It is a nuclear generator of heat. Right? The first advantage that this text is talking about is the advantage when you fall. The second advantage is a friend when life goes dark and when life goes cold and you can't survive by yourself. Do you realize that there are things in life you cannot navigate yourself? Then it goes on to the next thing. The self-defense Jackie Chan verse. That you might not be able to withstand somebody solo, but if you've got a partner with her with you, you can withstand somebody. You can hold them back. You can defend yourself. Who is your person that defends you when you're defenseless? It's like this, like when you meet a robber, like a certain bloody man did on a road, and a Samaritan came around and picked him up, protected him, put him in an inn, and cared for his, his wounds in the teachings of Jesus. Loving your neighbor means helping them withstand something they can't withstand alone. Okay, summary. Here we are. Let's bring it all in and put a bow on it. I started with this conversation in the text that there is no comforter. There's no comfort because there's no lasting companions. And it begs the question, if there's no lasting companions under the sun, where do we find eternally lasting relationships? It begs that question. And that's what Ecclesiastes does. It begs a question. It begs us to ask about Jesus. It was the envy of the Pharisees that put Jesus to death. But it was the work of God to raise him from the dead. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He is the help sent by God for sinners like you. He is our only hope to withstand sin, death, and hell. Relationship to Jesus adds eternal Meaning to life. Do you know him? Do you know him? C.S. Lewis said this quote, and I end with this. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Let me pray for you. If you're here in this room and you have sunk your teeth into something other than God to find your lasting meaning, I want to invite you with all the love of my heart as your pastor to repent and to turn to God in your relationship with Him through Christ Jesus, that you would believe the gospel all over again, that He has come 
to save sinners like you. And that there is nothing greater in life than a relationship with Him. If you've sunk your teeth into anything else, that less appetizing, less satisfying, that you would repent and spew it out of your life and trust Christ all over again. That's what I want to pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come here and invade heaven to earth and rescue us. God, rescue us from toil that will kill us. From fame and recognition. From the need to buy things. God, come rescue us. Invade heaven to earth here. God, would you cause me and my brothers and sisters here to repent of the sin that we hold so dearly? God, would you keep us in this church from envy and jealousy and division? God, would you help us to be the dad that cheers until people get back up? God, build this community and this church to have each other's back and to love one another as you have loved us. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen.